In our humanity, we often experience fear. We find it in the strange places, in the things that we sense are beyond our capacity and comprehension. This is Logosish. Today we spend some time exploring what it means to view sacred texts through the lens of the genre of horror, as we consider what it means to really contemplate that of which we cannot speak. Hey guys, one quick note. You may have noticed that we've been off a couple of weeks. Over half our hosts are now new parents, and so we will be taking a short break. We'll return in November with the rest of our Season 2 episodes that we recorded this summer. And we'll be bringing news about what's coming up in Season 3. Watch the website for some new writing and news from our hosts here at Logosish. And you can find it at logosish.com. Hey guys, welcome back to Logosish. This is John back from moving, or at least sort of back from moving. The boxes are still everywhere. They're taking over, and you may not see me ever again once the world is full of boxes that have replaced all the people in the world. It's a reality. It's true. Check out my website, read my blog, and embrace my conspiracy theory. I'm joined by Brian today. How are you doing, man? Man, I'm glad you're back, because hosting an episode by myself was not as easy as I thought it was going to be. And it is a joy to see you. I'm glad moving's going well. We are, we hope to see Garrett again soon because uh, they have some exciting news too. Yeah, yeah. His his baby is being born like literally today. He didn't want to join us from the delivery room for some reason. You know, just letting us down, letting us down. So everything's going good, Brian? Like everything's holding up? Everybody's doing okay? Things are going pretty well. Summer is hot and I'm enjoying AC inside my house as much as possible. I think that's a universal experience for anybody who lives in the South. Yes, and people are like, do you want to go anywhere? I was like, well, I'm used to staying inside all the time. Anyway, due to COVID, I'm just gonna continue to stay inside. Being I did an invite indoor kid is over... your new normal? <laughs> well, I think it was my normal my entire life, but that's not the point. But I did invite some folks over next week. I'm going to have some folks from around my district here, and we're having a planning meeting for future district stuff. So it's all good. Fun fun stuff. Yeah, you need to come check out our new house. We have officially bought a couch. They told us at the moment where we let them swipe our credit card that we had bought the TikTok couch. And I felt old, and Sarah just nodded sagely. So our couch is officially the coolest couch that exists. It's basically a transformer, and it just changes into all kinds of things, including a bed. I won't make you sleep on it because we actually have a real spare bed, but you may want to. It's really, really cool. I might, and when we all visit at the same time, I might need to. So we'll just do that. But we should probably get started. Yes, yeah. So our guest today is Dr. Brandon Grafius. He is an associate professor at Ecumenical Seminary, Theological Seminary. I'm already like butchering this title, uh, but that's okay. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I, I feel you about the heat. I'm up in Michigan, but it is hot and sticky here. You know, I saw the temperature was going to drop down to 80, and I thought I'd be good today, but it's at about 98% humidity. 
which I'm not quite sure how that's not just being underwater. So I live about three blocks from the ocean. And so like, it's like that all the time. Yeah, here. So I, I feel life. you. Huh. It, 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 it's not a good thing. <laughs> I will say South Carolina has been pretty nice the past couple of days. It's been kind of cool, sunny outside. I've gotten to go walk by the river almost every morning. I'm really living the dream right now. Uh, Brandon, I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us a little bit about your story, how you came to start writing about our topic today, which is going to be the Bible and horror theory? Absolutely. My my journey has been rather roundabout and circuitous. Sometimes I admire colleagues of mine that I see started as you know, religious studies majors when they were an undergraduate and went to seminary straight from there and finished their PhD by the time they were 26 or whatever. My story is is different. I started as a literature major in um, undergraduate, did a, an MA in poetry at uh, California Davis, um, spent a, a few years out in California. And yeah, that, that is, it really has come to be an interesting part of, of my identity as a biblical scholar because it allows me to figure out how to read texts, how to, how to engage with texts, how to appreciate these different kinds of things. So I, I kicked around in the corporate world for a while and finally felt the calling to go back to seminary um, or go back to graduate school and start seminary. Gradually realized that what I was drawn to was more being um, a professor than being a pastor. So um, after I finished my Master of Divinity, I uh, went to Chicago Theological Seminary for my PhD in Bible, Culture, and Hermeneutics. And while I was there, I was, I was interested in, in metaphor theory, interested in, in how, how the biblical texts do the things that, it, that, that they do, how the images work together, how the, the creative imagination shows through in these texts. And gradually started to, I, I think it was a, a footnote in Anathea Portier-Young's book, Apocalypse Against Empire, that briefly referenced monster theory, which made me stop and take note and wonder if this was really a thing. I've always had um, horror movies as a guilty pleasure um, and finally decided maybe I should stop feeling guilty about it and lean into this as, as part of my, my academic career. Right around that time, I was um, looking around for a dissertation topic and I started reading numbers Chapter 25 is the one that, that jumped out where the Israelites are wandering through the desert. They start messing around with foreign women, as you know the Israelites do, apparently. And God gets angry at them. Moses doesn't know what to do, but the, the priest Phineas skewers this mixed couple with his spear and gets praised by God for his great zeal for the Lord. So my, my first thought on reading this not only is how disturbing that this violence is divinely sanctioned, but realizing, hey, wait a minute, that death scene happened in Friday the 13th, part two. I remember that. So that led into my dissertation, which has since been published as Reading Phineas, Watching Slashers, where I not only explore how Numbers 25 connects with what I read as the really conservative slasher movies of the 1980s, that they're all about patriarchal control and trying to reestablish firm sexual boundaries, but also looking at how early readers of this text also read it in, in a similar way. Looking at, at Philo and 
Philo and Josephus and how there's there's this mixture of of repulsion at Phineas trying to downplay the violence but also an attraction and thinking he's kind of cool so so this blend of of repulsion and wonder that we we experience at monsters I think is fully present in these readings of Phineas in my my work since then I've continued to explore this connection between horror and Bible and I think that's what we'll spend most of the time talking about today yeah reading the Bible with horror is kind of an extension of some of the things that I, I was thinking through that didn't really fit in with a, a close reading of Numbers 25, and I've looked at it from other aspects since then. So that's maybe enough for an introduction for now. We can get onto the conversation and the questions and things. Huh? Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me. I've written a little tiny bit about apocalyptic literature and some of the visions associated with that, and thinking through theological ideas about heaven and hell and the the violence associated with that as well. So this theme is really in many ways right up my alley. I have a small obsession with weird fiction and Lovecraft and some of the oh, yeah. those things as well. So, you know, right we're right in the ballpark right now. It's it's kind of funny to me because when you were mentioning the movies from the 80s like Friday the 13th, you know, we I grew up with Scream you know, oh, with the yes. sort of self-conscious parodies of that, yeah. that, that idea with the various kinds of like horror movie rules, like what do you do to survive the horror movie and stuff yeah. like that. So it's, well, it's what do you do to survive the horror movie? Don't get naked. That's, that's, that's one of them. Yeah. There's that scene where, where the video store clerk says you can't have sex and everybody at the party boos and throws stuff at them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I didn't see that movie till uh, unfortunately late in life. I feel like I would have loved it as a teenager. And, uh, you know, I didn't see it till probably seminary sometime or somewhere in there, which I guess is not that much later in life for me. But it was really just a joy uh, uh, at some point discovered that I just I love to watch horror movies and just laugh all the way through, which probably says something <laughs> horrible about me. Brian, what do you think? No, I, I mean, I, I agree with that. And mostly because a lot of the, like, I don't know whether I'm laughing at the tropes or just the, like, absolute ridiculousness that that kind of just flows from these. Drag Me to Hell is one of the funniest movies ever made. And that is such a great movie. I think it knows exactly what it's doing in terms of it's winking at you the whole time. But yeah, it's it's hilarious and so much fun. And so... Where do we, where would someone who's interested in this topic, like, I know we can talk about numbers 25, yeah. but for folks who, who, you know, want to they have a certain level of kind of reverence for their Bible and they just pretend that parts of it aren't in there because they want to have that reverence toward it. Like, <laughs> what are some of the passages that might help us to like really dive into the topic more from, from your perspective? There, like, that, I, I think you raise so many good points in that that question. The first one is that that there is a lot of stuff in the Bible that we don't see in the lectionary every week at church that we try to ignore. It's there, and 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 for me, that's that's a a problem for our our faith tradition that allows us to think that it's only other religions that have nasty stuff in their in their sacred texts. Ours is all about love and kindness and being nice to one another. So I, I think it's important to acknowledge that we have uncomfortable passages in our in our traditions as well. Um, so yeah, Numbers 25 is not one that shows up in, in the lectionary, obviously. I don't think I've ever heard a sermon about it. But there, there are passages that we do talk about more in church that 
I think if you stop and think about them, really are horror. You know, you think back to Sunday school when you were learning about Noah's Ark and the animals who come on two by two by two and come came off by threesies, threesies, or however the song goes. That this is this is about an angry God who destroys the whole world. You know, Darren Aronofsky's movie Noah. It probably not exactly a horror movie, but it really does play up the horror of the the flood scene. Um, it certainly has some of that rhetoric and some of those characteristics. So I, I talk about that a lot in reading the Bible with horror. My argument is um, comparing it with the priestly creation myth in Genesis 1, that God is really employing the forces of chaos here in the, the flood narrative. You've got a lot of the same language, the same kinds of separating, and then God taking this embodiment of chaos, the water, and using it as a weapon. So God really becomes a chaos monster in the in the flood story. And then you you look at the 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 Exodus stories, let my people go. The, those are great heroic stories if you're on the side of the Israelite. Not so good if you're not. Like that is a god of horror. Well, in that I think part of that with the Exodus story is often in movies we we portray it wrong. We portray it as Moses versus Pharaoh yeah. when in the in the text it's it's God versus Pharaoh and we're always clear about who's going to win. And so like, that's, it's just completely imbalanced, but that's a really great point to make. Well, I think, I think to bringing God in as the sort of terrifying figure creates an interesting theological idea to play with. And also something I think that might be very challenging to practitioners of the faith, but you know, I was reading Mark at some point and I was, uh, running through a rough translation of Mark when they're on the on the lake and the storm comes up and Jesus stops the storm. Mm-hmm. And there's this moment at the tail end of the pericope where the disciples are looking at Jesus and almost every single English translation says, and they stared at him with awe or something like <laughs> that. And the literal Greek translation is, and they feared a great fear. You know, yeah. it's it's not awe, it's like Lovecraftian terror, this yeah. weird, insane thing that has just happened to them. So, so I'm curious, Brandon, what you would say when you approach a topic like that, where you're you're seeing within the text these sort of terrifying images of the divine and the but both the discomfort they bring and the the combination of alienness and familiarity that can create some disquiet within us. Yeah. Actually, this is kind of the topic of the the monograph I'm working on now. I just had the proposal accepted, so it should hopefully be in the works in the next year or two. Kind of working with um, Rudolf Otto's idea of the numinous. Um, Rudolf Otto the, is a early 20th century German theologian. He he argued he wanted to look at what what is our idea of God if we exclude the rational and the ethical, and we're left over with what he calls the numinous, the non-rational side of God. What does that look like? And he argues that when we as as limited, finite beings approach this numinous aspect of God, the appropriate response is terror, that we're struck by how insignificant and vulnerable we are as creatures, um, and that we respond with, with fear. It's kind of, you think of the Burkean or the Kantian sublime, that it kind of mixes this, this marvel and this terror. But for Otto, it maybe does fall down a little more on the side of terror. So I, I think of Otto's theology as almost a theistic version of Lovecraftian terror. And, and for me, what it really, really is about is that whenever we get to the limits of our thought, that's an uncomfortable place to be. And it's, it's frightening. 
Lovecraft's whole worldview is based on the idea that there are very small islands, I think he refers to in, in the, the story, The Call of Cthulhu, on which we're comfortable. And if we stray beyond that, we, we quickly realize that the universe is not safe, it's not kind for us, and we don't understand enough to even begin to participate in it. I think whenever we, we reach the, the divine and exceed the limits of what we can conceive of with our intellect, we have that experience of horror. And for me, it's actually, I think when you begin to work through it, it can really be a generative creative experience. It's challenging, of course, for a, a practitioner to think along these terms. But I, I do think that one of the primary things religion is supposed to do for us is expand our idea of what the world can be, what it should be, and how large the universe and the cosmos is. So when we, when we really stretch those boundaries. It can be uncomfortable and it can be frightening, but living with it a little bit and thinking through creatively what that does for our conception of being human, I think is an important, uh, what would I say, an important function of religion, an important part of being a spiritual being. Sure. And it's also like from our scriptural basis, like in trying to approach faith, we can't ignore that scripture values fear as a correct attitude (laughs) towards god like the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and yes we can we can couch that however we want but ultimately like there's part of god that is so powerful and so different from our from the way we perceive and understand the world that that awe that we have needs to have a little fear in it it's not just that god's always on our side it's that oh, we're the ant and that's the boot uh, in this equation. And that's just his. And it's a recognition of reality at a certain point. And I, I think, John, that point you mentioned about the, the passage in Mark with, with awe is the translation. I, I think we, we frequently translate these images of fear as awe. We're, we're really comfortable with this idea of awe, which is this kind of, yeah, yeah, you're really great. You're just, just wonderful. We're we're impressed. How did Monty Python put it? We're all so impressed down here, right? But that that really there is this this tone of of fear, and I think even when we try to put it in in awe, we're still trying to, in some ways, mitigate that fear by saying, no, we we have an appropriate attitude, and we're still safe, and we we still we understand this. The experience of awe is something that's overwhelming and large, but that you still understand. I think. Yeah. Every every time I read one of those those passages, whether it's in the Old or New Testament, they're talking about, oh, I'm just sitting here going like, that is not how I would have reacted. <laughs> um, and there might be like, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to cause John to have to bleep me out on the podcast, but there might be a word that I might not be comfortable uh, <laughs> saying in front of my congregation. Brian, I've said a lot of words on this podcast that I probably wouldn't be comfortable repeating on a Sunday morning. Oh, uh, well, I mean, will you, to be honest, when I'm reading, I'm just be like, the fuck are you doing, Jesus? <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Well, I think if we, part of my my assertion in a lot of my work is if the, we read really closely, that is more or less the response that the characters have. It, it is not this sanitized, let's sing a, a pretty song in, in praise. It, it's some real terror. Yeah. Um, and, and it's an honest and human reaction to that terror. Yeah. But we are, you know, modern American Christians are really uncomfortable with that feeling being associated with our religious practices absolutely, and our religious norms, because we have tried to put those in a box 
and say that those are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we have defined God as good and define God as nice and unthreatening. Um, if we take seriously and, the and idea we, of- And God, we equate good with unthreatening. Yes, thank you, thank you. Yes, that's exactly what I was trying to get at. And when we when we put those definitions on, I mean, that that is really against this idea of God's radical freedom that so many theologians have talked about. If God is really, truly free, that means God has the freedom to act in ways that we perceive of as frightening. So it, it occurs to me that there could be a very healthy way take advantage of this observation and and to make use of it. It also occurs to me that there could be a very unhealthy way to take advantage of this observation and use it, especially if you are taking the monstrous and mm-hmm. I think normalizing it and, and bringing, using it to justify uh, your own, I'm going to call it very gently an undesirable uh, way yeah. of being. Uh, we- can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. For me, the the first thing that jumps to mind in terms of an unhealthy relationship with the monstrous would be, um, you know, over the past couple of decades, we've seen a trend of fundamentalist hell houses happening on Halloween. That these are are haunted houses that are that use all of the tropes of horror and fear in an attempt at social control. You know, what's frightening is the homosexual lifestyle or or premarital sex or anything like any anything like this. So we're we're using all of these these techniques of horror, all of these fear and redefining what the monstrous is. The monster is no longer that which breaks boundaries by committing violence like Phineas or or Leviathan or something like that. The monstrous is now the person who does not conform to what are supposedly considered acceptable social norms. That kind of employment of the monstrous to yeah, cause create social control is is frightening and, and is really damaging. For me, one of the fascinating things about monster theory is that it causes us to think about what is being defined as monstrous, and then against that, what is being defined as normal, normal in, in air quotes. I think it was Foucault back in the 70s who observed monsters are not born, they're created. Monsters are monsters because we as a society have decided they are. So that gives us a really interesting opportunity to look at what is being constructed as monstrous. So I try to keep some of our conversation at a pretty accessible level, even though I've already messed that up today. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I'll but do my so best. Could you, could you summarize the basics of monster theory for our listeners, just in case they're not familiar? Yeah, great question. So the, the idea of monster theory is that we're, we're examining what characteristics the monsters have, how they function, and what about them is defined as monstrous. Usually we consider the monstrous to be anything that is outside of the norms of humanity or the, what is natural is maybe a better way to put it. So it might be a creature that can't exist in nature. It's, it's too large or it's a combination of a couple of different creatures that shouldn't be. Or it can be someone like Norman Bates in the movie Psycho who seems to be human but who completely lacks all human empathy and understanding of human relationships. So he becomes mm-hmm. monstrous. Um, and then the monstrous is always set against the normal. The normal is the opposite of the, the monstrous. So we, we make monsters out of what we think we are not. One of the points I've written about several times and other, other scholars have picked up on too is that you use the monstrous as a category to create others out of people. We think in the Bible how like the, the Canaanites or the Midianites are described in like as, as locusts or as giants or as other non-human terms. Mm-hmm. So you create monsters out of them. 
And then that sets us as a community up as the normal ones. And I'm using air quotes around normals. Because they're monsters, we're not. I think one of the interesting insights of monster theory, though, is that we always misunderstand ourselves. Um, so the monster is more what we wish we weren't than what we yes. actually are not. Usually, some of the monstrous is present in ourselves as well. You see that in some of the ancient Near Eastern creation myths where you know Marduk is fighting against Tiamat, but Marduk also has monstrous characteristics himself. This idea of there's a monster on one side and a hero on the other, it usually doesn't sustain itself. Those boundaries are usually not quite so clear. Well, and it, it really does come to mind the epic hero narratives where you have these figures who vanquish these like terrifying beasts and this and that and so on and so forth, and then they you know, come home and, you know, their life is tragic in some other way. And often they become, you know, monsters in their own right, either due to circumstance or to fate, or I guess circumstance and fate are probably the same thing. But you, you see what I'm getting at. The, the hero is often monstrous. And we see this repeated throughout all sorts of different cultures, all sorts of different narratives and genres. The example that jumps to mind, my mind is John Ford's, John Wayne's 1950s Western, The Searchers, where John Wayne plays a character who you would normally think of as the hero of the cowboy narrative. But by the end of that movie, he's become a monstrous hater of Native Americans who has to leave his, his family because he can't really exist in, in peace with them anymore. We think of him as a hero, but he's become monstrous by the end of the movie. Yeah, the quote that I was trying to bring to mind a minute ago is from Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane. And there's an exchange between two of the characters where the one of the characters says to the other, they're talking about a, a figure who they feel is monstrous. And the, the quote is that, um, of course, monsters are afraid. They're monsters because they're afraid or something along those lines. Yes. And so defining, you know, our, our fear and our idea of what a monster is and how we become and are, are shaped into potentially things that, that we are afraid of it has to do with, with fear itself playing an interesting role, I think, in, in terms of the spiritual conversation, the spiritual practices, looking at the kinds of... A, emotions and states that we exist in that can kind of consume us and take over our thinking and drive us down into those those fundamentalist spaces where we're well, trying and, to build a box for the sake of control yes isn't i mean isn't that just simply like where that where a need for control simply comes from is from being afraid uh, afraid of what it means to not have control in our life in our world in the church society whatever you want to however you want to phrase it like but that lack of control is all based in fear absolutely and then when we're afraid one of the things we try to do um it's much easier to be afraid of something that is tangible that's physical that has a form that you can see and you can touch and can control so if we're afraid we create monsters so that we can dominate them and be victorious over them. Whether, whether that's, you know, we're afraid so we create monstrous immigrants. We're afraid so we mm. create monsters in the LGBTQ community. Now but, we've got an object for our fear that we can control and we can tell ourselves we don't have to be afraid of, of this anymore because we are victorious, we're the heroes. Yeah, I think we've seen a lot of that in the last several years uh, in, in a political sphere as well. So from one way or another, but that's something to really ponder about. Go ahead, John. 
So, Brandon, I was going to ask about uh, a little more about the literary theory behind this. So there's monster theory. Are there other elements of things that you see in the texts that have been kind of explored in academic spheres? In terms of other other ways that monstrosity has played or or what are you thinking of exactly? I'm just sort of thinking about horror as a, a genre more broadly, not just yeah. monster theory, but but the other yeah. elements of horror literature that you might yeah. explore. That for for a while, um, one of the one of the arguments I've been making in some of my work recently is that academia has been kind of stuck in monsters, <laughs> and I really do want to broaden that out to horror. So we're we're seeing some. Some academics um, use like affect theory to explore horror, the pre-rational state of emotions. How does how does horror tap into our emotions? What kind of emotions are aroused by that? And then why do we find horror entertainment pleasurable? You would not enjoy being actually chased around the house by a guy with a knife, but we can watch that happening and scream and 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 either laugh or find experience whatever emotions we experience that at least have some kind of enjoyment in them. Again, I think back to the Burkean and Kantian sublime that requires distance from the, the sublime object in order to, to reach that, that pleasure. But I think there's, there's also a whole bunch of, of mediating factors that go through. One of the, the academics who's really interested me lately is Eugene Thacker, who has a, a series called the, the Horror of Philosophy, not the philosophy of horror, but the horror of philosophy, uh, where he's really been looking at what are the, the limits of what we can think of as humanity, as, as people, what the limits of our rational thought, and what happens when we try to push beyond that. So I think I talked about this a little bit earlier with Lovecraftian horror, because there are certainly some overlaps to that. And then the, the idea that horror is kind of one of these spaces where we can play around with these paradoxes and move up to these limits of thought. And we can push on, what does it look like to have a world without people? It's kind of impossible to think through, because even when we're imagining a world without people, we're imagining ourselves as people looking at an empty world. But we can begin to imagine, explore, try to come closer to thinking through what this actually means in spaces like horror. Well, that's a really interesting rabbit hole to go down. You know, I've been thinking a little bit about transhumanism. Yeah. And gearing that more towards science fiction and technology and, you know, what do you do with religion and spirituality uh, if you encounter a paradigm shift that radically changes the way we view ourselves and function as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like a horror lens could also lend itself to that kind of reflection. Absolutely. Uh, both in the realm of the sacred and the secular. secular. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and that's, I, I think it's really fascinating to, to notice in the Hebrew Bible that divine encounters always bring about that kind of a, um, what do you call it? A shift in, I can't remember the exact phrase you used, but somehow bring about a new perspective or a radical paradigm shift. That was maybe the, the phrase I was looking for. Job responding to God by saying, you know, I, I, I read the Hebrew in, in, at the end of Job as Job saying, you know, I am rethinking things. I am reconsidering dust and ashes. Not I, I repent in dust and ashes, but I'm changing my mind about dust and ashes. All right. Yeah, I love that interpretation of the end of Job. It's Job is such a weird conclusion. <laughs> sure. so, so I have a totally different question for you. What are your top horror movies? Oh, I, I was going to ask too, because I have to, like, we can't not know. Oh, oh it's, it's always a fun question. I, I, I 
kind of have like in my mind uh, broken down into classics, into the ones that have scared me most at different periods, and then in like new contemporary ones that I really enjoy. Well, um, we want it all because oh, we love great. movies. Sounds, sounds good. So for me, it's hard to top The Shining as a classic horror movie. I, I know that Stephen King didn't like that adaptation, but I think Kubrick's vision is is really, really sublime, I might say. I, I think that one brings brings everything in there. I do tend to to appreciate the the supernatural and the reflective more. So you know, I, I'm drawn to like the 19s, the black black and white 1961, The Innocence, um, that's based on the turn of the screw. Um, I think that's pretty much a perfect horror movie. More recently, um, I'm not sure of anything that knocked me on my butt the way Us did. I presented at the recent Society of Biblical Literature meeting, looking at the the doppelgangers of us and comparing them to the sibling rivalries of Genesis, looking at how both of them are questions of, of justice and kind of the lack of justice from the divine, that we're really looking at privilege that has no ethical, rational explanation for it. And then causing us to reflect, of course, on how our society is built on this same kind of privilege that really has no no merit. Even more recently, I really liked the movie Relic that came out maybe a year or so ago during the pandemic. Um, I'm working on a piece comparing that with Ecclesiastes about this idea of, of decay, how as our lives come to an end, our stuff falls apart. I think, I think Relic is one that I, I've seen maybe three or four times now and um, hasn't let me go. I've really, really admired that one. And then in my my recent book, I've got a, a book coming out with Broadleaf Book that's aimed at more of a trade audience as opposed to an academic one that should be coming out next year. Um, I talk about how I don't think I've been scared as an adult more um, than I was during Sinister, the Ethan Hawke horror movie. And I think that might be because, you know, it's about a researcher who finds these super eight films in, in the attic of the family who lived in the house before him, who was, who was murdered. And I watched this as a PhD student when my family was away for the weekend and I was working on a paper. So I, I totally felt like I was the Ethan Hawke character here. There, there is nothing worse than when like the pers- the main character in the horror movie like is you like yep, that, yep. that that there's nothing worse than that i felt so, completely like, indicted i loved it so every so every time like one of the main characters is like a clergy person or the clergy person shows up i'm just like man i cannot do this exorcism oh, don't really? ask that of me like <laughs> I, I just I, like i'm not doing it no no not catholic that's okay come on brian not even the the modest yahoo movie oh what was that movie it had a really generic title it was like the possession or something like that but modest um, yahoo and it plays a, a like a, an orthodox rabbi who gets yeah, I, th- I think that is i think that is the possession yeah and but nonetheless even though like i i can't help my attraction to them either exactly like i i don't i don't know why and i, I there's just something about it. I, I a mixture know. of awe and fear. <laughs> so I'm I'm definitely taking some notes because a couple of those I hadn't seen, including Relic. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, mainly because I keep seeing commercials about it over and over and over again. What is your feeling about the new M. Night Shyamalan movie, Old? You know, I have not seen that one yet. For a long time, I kind of stopped paying attention to M. Night Shyamalan. It seemed like he stopped 
he like forgot how to make movies in the early 2000s like like uh around the time of the the last airbender that horrible live action adaptation of the avatar stuff um, we we agree but we agree because we love avatar the last airbender uh, yes the the animated series is just wonderful that was when my kids were young this was like the first thing i found that my kids wanted to watch that was appropriate for them that i could actually sit through and enjoy along with them you know, it was a huge step up from like DA everything and, and yeah jake and the neverland pirates yeah so oh, where was i going with that oh oh um but then then um i think it was when when the visit came out the the one with the creepy grandparents and things it, it seemed like okay maybe Shyamalan knows what he's doing a little bit more and then he's had a few since then where it seems like he's back on the back in the saddle again so to speak so i i haven't haven't seen the new one yet yeah, I've heard good things about the Apple TV series. It's just the the premise of old is just kind of killing me on the inside slowly. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm aging faster when I see that preview. Oh no! So <laughs> I I just I'm I'm looking I think for validation that my reaction just to the preview is is as negative as it should be. I don't know. Who knows? I'll have to make sure I check it out. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we can get your hot take once you've seen it and we can edit it back into this episode. Yeah. So we're coming toward, uh, we're heading towards the end of our typical time slot for this episode. And we like to end on a positive note each week. I think we've been pretty positive through the whole thing. I've really enjoyed this conversation. But guys, what is bringing you joy right now? What is, at the very least, getting you through the week? Or what is bringing you to the transcendent sublime? I, I've had both both personal and professional things that have gotten me at least close to the sublime. I'm excited for the the trade book I've got coming out next year. It's called Living with Horror, subtitled Faith and, Faith and Fright in an Anxious Age. Um, it was was written mostly last year during the pandemic. Yeah, start. I put the proposal together right as everything was shutting down, and then just kind of kind of kept writing away. So it's really looking through how do we take all of this, all of this horror, and and make meaning out of our world with it. Looking at both horror and religion as being uh, inherently about making meaning of our lives, about understanding questions of justice, and understanding what hope means on a, on a really deep level, not a, a superficial head in the sand kind of a level, a really, really deep understanding of hope. So the, the manuscript for that has been submitted and I'm working on edits and stuff now. So that should be out next year. And then, as I mentioned, I've got a new proposal I'm working on, or the proposal has been accepted. So I've got a manuscript I'm working on called Concerning Dust and Ashes that is looking at divine encounters in the Hebrew Bible as sources of horror that they force us to rethink, to shift paradigms, so to, so to speak, John, and that that experience is necessarily frightening. So I, I've been really excited about both of those two projects, uh, growing, getting some legs, um, getting closer to coming into the world. Personally, so I, I live a little bit of a, a small town, but we've got about an acre of land or so. So, and it's, you know, outside of Lansing and Michigan a little bit, we've got in our backyard, there's a, a small river that runs through our backyard. So we've had a few ducks that we have, have had as companion ducks that live in, a, live in our duck house and they come out to the river during the day and then come back to get fed at night. We now have 10 ducklings along with the, the main ducks. So there is a flock of ducks that is squawking and living in our backyard. I was worried you would hear the, the mama duck yelling all through this podcast interview. So things like that help get me through the day, help keep me going. Yeah, that's that's been my 
area right now too. I've been walking the dog by the Riverwalk in Columbia most mornings for the past week. Uh, we've got the baby's room together now, so all we've got to do really is just kind of wait and patiently hope for everything to go well and to, you know, just keep on trucking on with what we've been doing. But the nesting portion is finally underway. So we're having a good time putting the house together piece by piece. What about you, Brian? So I've been thinking about it. And for me, like I'm just an extroverted person generally. And we had not this past Sunday because July the 4th was, you know, abysmal. But that last Sunday in June, there were seven new people who came to the garden, the congregation where I serve at at one time. And I'm just sitting here going like, I don't think that happened to me, except for like on an Easter Sunday when I worked at a large church to see seven new people. And, you know, they all are coming. I got the chance to talk to all of them and they've all like become a part of this community because they're inclusive because they they want to like hear the gospel and actually have it be good news and they're looking for a place to belong and i'm just glad that they found one so that's great brian that's awesome so last question brandon where can people find you if they want to look up your work check you out find out more about the bible and horror and whatever else you have going on yeah, so I, I, I try to be as active online as I can be. You can always find me on Twitter at BRGrafius. And then, then from there, you know, I, I, yeah, I guess Twitter is the main social media that I do. Some of my work is available on the seminary's website. You can check out there. And then I've got a couple of books out that sometimes they're expensive because they're academic books, but hopefully you can get them through the library. My newest book is a handbook on the witch from the Devil's Advocate series. So that's a little bit more affordable that gives a close reading of that recent movie, but also talks about how it fits in with Calvinist tradition and anxieties about religion. Even though it's a reading of that movie, I also feel like it's a fun introduction to my work. Yeah, I saw that online. Uh, Sorry, I was distracted a minute. I was following you on Twitter (laughs) through our our, um, podcast account. But yeah, I saw that online and was really interested in it. Now all I want to do is watch horror movies. So uh, thank you so much for this conversation. I am going to knock off work early and skip out on doing all the writing I'm supposed to do this afternoon and go watch that list of horror movies that you gave us because you know i've got to catch up i've got to catch up with all the good ones it yes 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 what a fun conversation thank you so much for having me on thanks again for listening guys i'm about to go enjoy some horror movies In the meantime, you should go like, subscribe, and follow us wherever podcasts are sold and on all relevant social media. It makes a big difference, and it would mean a great deal to us. You can find us at Pod. You can also check out our bookshop using the link in the show notes and the website. Every purchase helps support the podcast and local bookstores. Our music today was by Audionautics.com. Cheers, and have a great week.